It's my privilege and an honor to be able to stand up before you here today and uh, present the Word of God to you. And as often, and many of you have probably seen your Bible, the parable we'll be looking at today is from the very mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So as we begin here in, in verse 19, I won't be redundant and read it all, but we'll go through here verse by verse and, and see what our Lord is saying here. So as my grandpa just read this parable of our Lord's, this is a parable of things to come. This parable in all likelihood is one of just that, just a parable. There are some scholars who think that Jesus using the story of the rich man and Lazarus was, was actually a real story or, or just a, a, a kind of a wives, wives tale or a fable in that time period. So the people who were hearing it may have already been familiar with the story and Jesus used it to illustrate his point to us. We have two primary individuals in this parable of our Lord. The first one is a rich man. And the nickname throughout the church that has been given to him is the Latin word for rich, and that is dives, D-I-V-E-S. And this other individual, this man Lazarus, who interestingly enough, and many of you probably already know, is the only individual in all of the parables of our Lord who has a name. So we begin here in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. We see here, we're introduced, first of all, to this rich man, Dives. And what do we see here? We're given a description of of what he was like, what his life was like on a daily basis. And if you're familiar with the ancient world, even up until a couple hundred years ago, purple was a sign, was a signal, was a symbol of your wealth. Purple was very hard to come by in the ancient world. There was only one place in all of the ancient world, that is the city of Tyre in northern Israel and Lebanon today, where they were able to make this purple. It was actually uh, made from the secretion of snails that they found on the outer banks of the city of Tyre. So it was a very difficult and laborious time to be able to make this, this purple. So Jesus here is, is explaining of this rich man, he is clothed in purple. It signifies wealth and prestige and honor. The people who would wear purple were the the dignitaries, the kings and the queens and the princes and the honored generals and those who had the utmost wealth in society. And he had fine linen. And listen to these words of our Lord. He fared sumptuously every day. He had nothing from his eyes. From the clothes he wore to the food he ate, he made sure that his pleasure was to the max each and every day of his life. Then we're introduced here in verse 20. We're introduced to this certain beggar, and as we've already established, his name was Lazarus. And what do we see of this man from the description of our Lord? First of all, he was full of sores. His body, his physical description is is that of almost pathetic. It's terrible. You have the description of this rich man who is clothed, who is beautiful looking, and has all of these pearls and these fine linens, and you have this beggar, maybe with some tattered clothes upon himself, with holes in him, old and all dirty, and he has these sores upon his skin. So in a certain sense, every day of his life is a struggle. It's torment. So much so that when we see here that he was so miserable in the verse 21, 
that he desired to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And we also see where this man was, this poor man Lazarus. He sat at the gate of this rich man. Now, it's not a gate like we would think at our front door. In times like this, the rich and wealthy would have big and huge mansions and then have a courtyard. So this man Lazarus was sitting at the entrance of the property. Kind of to put it in modern terms, it would be as if Lazarus was sitting at the end of our driveway. So he wasn't up close and personal to our house, but he was at a distance of this rich man, enough that he wouldn't have been noticed by those passing by into the rich man's house. So what do we see here? He is desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Again, another proof of his physical condition. Not only is he sore, but he's starving. He's begging for simple crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. At our house, Tuesday night is garbage night. And I can bet you that Lazarus, every Monday night, or every Tuesday night, when the garbage was taken out to the curb, that was his weekly feast. That's how poor and destitute this poor man was. And even further, we see here in verse 21, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, many of you are probably familiar that man's best friend in the 21st century in the United States is obviously a dog. But not so in ancient antiquity, especially in Palestine and Israel. The dog was a vile creature. It was a hated creature. So there's two things and two ways we can look at this, of the dogs coming and licking this poor man's sores. It was either that the dogs were the only one in society that had compassion upon this man. As all of you know, if a dog sees a wound, if it has a wound on itself or a wound on its owner, it will come up in compassion and lick the sores of that individual. So it may have been that the dogs are the only ones to have compassion upon this poor man, Lazarus, or it could also symbolize that this man, Lazarus, was even beneath the dogs in Israel in that day. That's how low this man was in the eyes of society, and as we'll see here, in the eyes of the rich man. Now we have here in verse 22, we have the great equalizer, and what is that? That is death. We have these individual lives who are completely on the opposite end of the economic and social spectrum. This rich man who was at the top, the pinnacle of wealth. We have this poor man who was on the bottom. No one even knew who he was. So what do we see here in verse 22? So that it was when the beggar died and was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. At the same time period, the rich man died and also was buried. Now this is simple speculation and reading more into the story. But we can perhaps see here, if they die in the same general time frame, that this poor man, he dies at the gate or he dies in the street. And the passerby, the, the garbage men, the people who would pick up the scraps on the street, they see this poor beggar at the gate, they drag his body and they put it into a general dump. They put it into a mass grave. No one knew who he was, no one knows who he is, and no one will remember who this individual is. That's who this poor man Lazarus was. But at the same time... We have also that the rich man died. Death, again, the great equalizer. And any time, most of the time in history, any time a wealthy individual dies, a king or a queen or someone of prestige, what happens? In our society, they get put in the rotunda at the Capitol for everyone to be able to view and, and see their body and remember them. So you can think that this rich man and all of his, his wealth had an extravagant funeral of mourners and of people sympathizing, a huge state funeral, and not only that, but he may have had the best and the most glorious tomb to be able to remember his time here on earth. But as we'll see as we go through this story, 
that's of passing significance. What happens here on earth? This rich man, the time, as James says, our time here on earth is like a vapor. We're here one day, and then we're gone the next. And as we see, he, was di- he died, and he was buried. And verse 23 is when we get into the details of the story. Verse 23, he is dead. And what does it say? And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Alas, the rich man is in torment in Hades or in place of torment. And imagine you're this rich man. You're used to just the wonders and the luxuries of life. And you die and you're in Hades and you're suffering under the punishment And all of a sudden, to his astonishment and to his horror, he looks up and he sees this pathetic beggar, this Lazarus, this man of insignificance. He looks up and he sees this man, Lazarus, in the bosom of Abraham. Now, we don't have to take it that actually those who die and go to heaven are in the bosom of Abraham. It could be that Jesus is just using this, again, for illustrative purposes. But in Matthew 8.11, Jesus does say here, he says in Matthew 8.11, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Again, I think this bosom of Abraham signifies peace and prosperity and final rest for this man, Lazarus, whose life was so terrible. But this rich man looks up, and just to put yourself in the shoes of this rich man, you look up and you see this, this filthy man, Lazarus, up in heaven enjoying eternal bliss and joy while you're sitting there suffering. And what do we see here in verse 24? What does the rich man say? He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Now what can we take from this one? The rich man cries out to Father Abraham and asks for mercy. Now, we need to understand what type of mercy he is asking for. This is not the mercy of sincere repentance, as we see in the gospel when Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is not a repentance of turning away from your sins. This is a mercy that this rich man wants, an easement from the pain that he is in. He cries to have mercy from the merciless flame that consumes him. All he is asking for from Father Abraham is to have a break from this torment. And what does he say? Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. You notice here that Dives, this rich man, has respect for Father Abraham. He gives him the title, Father Abraham. But understand, too is that those in eternal judgment, those in hell, they still have their hardness of hearts. They still have their condescension. And what do we see here? Send Lazarus. This rich man, still thinking of his time here on earth when other people served him, he still wants this poor beggar enjoying eternal bliss to yet one more time serve him. Send Lazarus. Have Lazarus do my bidding one last time. And I think Jesus is saying here that those in hell are never, ever going to repent. Their hearts are still hardened. Their minds are still on the things of earth, and they still want, as this rich man does, to have someone else serve them. He wants Lazarus to take his finger, to dip it in water, and to put it on his tongue tongue to soothe his pain. 
There is no repentance of those in torment, only remorse and regret. There is a world of difference. And an illustration that we can use in the New Testament is that of Judas. As we see that Judas, after he betrayed Christ, he had remorse and regret for what he did, so much so that he tried to give the 30 pieces of silver back, and he also killed himself, but there was no repentance. He was sorry for his sin, but there was no turning from it and turning to Christ. That is the example of Judas. What is repentance? It has to be a transformation of the heart. Not only a turning away from your sin, but a turning to the new, turning to Jesus Christ. And this rich man and those in eternal torment and punishment will never ever do that. And we see, for I am tormented in this flame. What do we make of this man begging for a drop of water? For I am tormented in this flame. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been so thirsty from physical activity and excursion that just the thought of fresh water brings relief to your countenance? If you run on a hot day the last couple weeks, if you ran around your neighborhood and you were, you were all sweaty, the only thing that you could think of was a huge glass of cold water. Listen here what Albert Barnes says in his commentaries on this story. I think it's extremely pertinent. He says, Those who travel in burning deserts thus suffer inexpressibly when they are deprived of water. So pain of any kind produces thirst, and particularly if connected with fever. The sufferings of the rich man are, therefore, represented as producing burning thirst. So much that even a drop of water would be refreshing to his tongue. We can scarce form an idea of more distress and misery than where this is continued from one day to another without relief. You see the punishment that this rich man is under for his life of revelry and drunkenness and riches and his love for himself. Day or night, he is not going to have rest in the misery that he is going to suffer forever and ever. And Jesus here is saying that the suffering that he is going to endure, a drop of cold water upon his tongue, is the only form of relief he can get. That's no relief for us when we're dehydrated. But for those who are under eternal punishment, that is a form of relief. Matthew ten twenty eight which I think is one of the most scary verses in all of the Bible, our Lord Jesus Christ says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. What is Jesus saying here is that no form of physical punishment or torment that we can undergo here on earth is anything to be compared to the judgment of a holy God. Nothing to be compared. It is the wrath of a holy God upon the lost. I'd even have to say some have speculated there, there actually may be no flame and eternal punishment and eternal hell. And some people sigh relief for that. But I can tell you that the flame is far better than what awaits those who face eternal perdition under the wrath of a holy God. We can't begin as finite creatures to understand the holiness of God, the mercy of God, the glory of God, the vastness of God. And on the other hand, we have to consider the infinite God 
as finite creatures, we cannot begin to understand the wrath of a holy God. If we can't understand the vastness of his glory, we can't begin to understand the vastness of his wrath and of his rage. An interesting story. John Gerstner, who was the mentor of R.C. Sproul, had a great story or a great studies on hell and heaven, according to Jonathan Edwards. And if you're not familiar who with Jonathan Edwards was, he was, if not the greatest, one of the greatest theologians in the church history. And he resided here in the United States in the 1750s. But Dr. Gerstner asked this individual, this professor at Yale University, who himself was a foremost expert on Jonathan Edwards, and he asked this gentleman, he said, according to Jonathan Edwards, what is the worst thing about hell? And this professor answered and said, according to Jonathan Edwards, I think the worst thing about hell is the absence of God. And Dr. Gerstner, in his typical response, said, well, when we get back there, we're going to look at some of the manuscripts of Jonathan Edwards and see what he says. And they got back there in the library, and they looked through some of the old manuscripts, and this professor said, my goodness, I stand corrected. Friends, I'm here to tell you, because of this verse 24 and other verses in all of the Bible, Romans 2, 5, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10, that the worst thing about hell is not the absence of God. It's not the flame. It's not the torment. It's not the eternality of it. The worst thing about hell, friends, is the wrath of a holy God. It's the presence of God. Those in eternal perdition would give everything in this world to have God leave everlasting torment. But I'm here to tell you that the punishment of this rich man, he is under the wrath and the presence of a holy God forever and ever. We continue on in verse 25. He says, But Abraham said, Son, you remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. As we see earlier, a description of his name, Rich. This man did not keep one thing from his fat eyes here on earth. Every single day, he sought to maximize his pleasure and his joy here on earth. He trusted in his earthly riches instead of things to come. And let me stop there and say for a minute that having riches is not automatically a sentence to eternal judgment. And being poor and destitute is not an automatic sentence to everlasting joy. We see throughout the Bible, Father Abraham and Job and and Joseph of Arimathea were some of the richest men in all of the world. And I can guarantee that they are enjoying the presence of Christ right now. It's not your physical characteristics, and it's, what, it's not what you physically believe. It's in who you believe as Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. That is how you are justified. This rich man trusted in his earthly sensual pleasures, and Lazarus, his faith, if he is in heaven, was in Jesus Christ to save him from his sins. In verse 26, And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. We see here that quite possibly there could be a great gulf fixed between heaven and hell, but we're not certain, and that's not, that's not evident, or that's not uh, important in this story. What is important, what Jesus is illustrating here, is that it's inescapable. 
once you take your final breath and stand before the judgment seat of God, and on that last day Christ says to you, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, it's over. You have no other chance. Throughout church history, there have been sects and individuals who have, who have thought at one point or another that the pits of hell would, would spit up their dead and, and that they would have another chance to be in the eternal bliss of heaven. But according to the scriptures and according to Jesus Christ, that is not the case. Some people, some churches, they think that, that once the souls are in hell, the Jehovah's Witnesses, there's annihilation, they'll cease to exist. The scripture is clear that that is not the case. The Apostle Paul says it in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, eternal destruction. Not final destruction, eternal destruction. And again, as finite creatures, we can't begin to wrap and grasp our minds around eternity. Not only eternity in heaven and the joys and the beauty that we will bask in the glory of Jesus Christ forever and ever, we can't understand that. But we can't understand the judgment and the wrath of a holy God forever and ever. And we see here in these, in these last four verses, this dialogue between the rich man and Abraham yet again. Verse 27, then he said, I beg you therefore, Father Abraham, that you would send him to my father's house. In verse 28, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31, But Abraham said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rises from the dead. What we see here in this clump of verses is that Abraham is telling this rich man that they already have all the information that they need to believe. If someone is raised from the dead, they will blow them off like they blew off the Old Testament and the prophets and Moses. There are three ways, friends. There are three ways God has revealed his truth to us according to Scripture. The first, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, verses 18 to 20, it is through the general revelation of nature. And let me read these three verses. Verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. They are without excuse. Every man and woman who has ever been born on the face of this earth, when they stand before a holy God someday and they say, I had no idea you existed. The Apostle Paul here says in Romans 1, they will be without excuse. All you have to do is walk out at night and look at the moon and look at the stars and look at creation and you can see and come to an understanding that there is a God and that he exists forever and ever. First, the second thought, this is the other way God reveals himself to people. 
And that's what we have here through the Old Testament. At this time of Christ, the New Testament was not yet written. So what the believers had at that time period was the Old Testament. And what do we have here through the Old Testament? We have Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God and the Lord is one. It is evident through the Old Testament, through the Old Testament scriptures and Moses and the prophets, that there is a God. It is evident, though not always easy to see in the Old Testament, the coming of the Messiah, that is Jesus Christ. We have in Genesis 3.15, after the fall, God tells Adam and Eve, and he tells the serpent, he tells them these wonderful words, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise on, or he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is a prophecy of thousands of years to come in the future, that Jesus Christ, the God-man, would come in the flesh, that yes, Satan would bruise his heel, he would kill him, but more importantly, three days later, he would rise from the dead and crush the head of death. That's in the Old Testament and plain for everyone to see. In the last way, God has revealed himself to us and pertinent in our day. And the easiest of them all is that through the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2, 3-6. The Apostle Paul says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. All the evidence is here. The excuse of this rich man to have Lazarus be uh, taken from the dead and presented to his brothers is just that, an excuse. All an unbeliever has, hearing the word of God, is present on your phone, on your Bible, on your phone, or in your lap. When you stand before God someday again, you will have no excuse whatsoever for your unbelief. When the unbelievers say on the last day that they didn't have enough evidence to believe, Jesus will say to them, depart from me. Is there more any terrorizing words in all of the Bible and all of human history than the words in the last days to the goats, depart from me? you worker of iniquity. That's it. It's over. And in closing, points of application to the believers. I think this goes to show, as Jesus said at the end of Matthew, we're to make disciples of all men. The last destination is eternal destruction. It is our God-given job to proclaim the word of God wherever we are and to whomever we meet. But let this story have an understanding to us that every person will give an account to Jesus Christ on the last day. And as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, it is our mission, it is our duty and job to make known the gospel message of Jesus Christ to the unbeliever. Outside of Jesus Christ, as this rich man, in your sensual pleasures, in your daily pleasures, you may have temporal hope in those things, but you have not an everlasting hope. You don't have an eternal hope. Those things come to an end. The rich man loved his riches and wealth only to find out it meant nothing. Like the old slogan, he who has the most toys at the end wins. 
That's only for those in this life, when they take their last breath and stand before Christ, they'll realize that slogan was bogus. I heard, an indiv- I heard of an individual this week boasting about the possibility of living forever inside of a computer. That's the hope of people of this world, living forever on this earth. But for those of us in Jesus Christ who have believed that Jesus Christ died, rose again, and conquered death on the third day, that he took away our sins and gave us his righteousness, our hope is not in this world, thank the Lord. It's an eternity in the bosom of Abraham. Let me read these last two verses, Matthew 3, 2. Repent, as John the Baptist said, of the coming of Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you do not know Jesus Christ, what is the command this day? Repent of your sin. Not only regret your sin, but turn from your sin and look to Jesus Christ. In Romans 5.1, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are in Jesus Christ today, what is the greatest gift that we have ever been given? It is to have peace with a holy God forever and ever. If you don't know Jesus Christ, today I ask that you repent of your sin and look to him who can save. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of your Son that were given to us so that we can go back and look to as an example of things to come, Lord. And I, it is my prayer, Lord, uh, it's not up to me to save them. It's not up to them to save themselves. It is up to your Holy Spirit to take their hearts of stone and turn them to hearts of flesh. My Lord and my God, if there is some here who do not know you, turn them to you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray all of these wonderful things. Amen.